This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Hello, you are listening to Triple R and welcome to another episode of Plato's Cave, a film criticism show and podcast. I am Stuart Richards and with me tonight are my co-hosts, Sally Christie, and any moment now we will be joined by Cerise Howard who Hello, is stuck Stewie. in traffic. And a big welcome back to you because I know that you've been overseas judging films at film festivals and yes. I've been very jealous of you on Facebook and <laughs> it's nice to have you back in the studio. It's good to be back in Melbourne, thank you. Uh, and yes, yeah, so we will be joined by Cerise Howard any moment now. Um, She's just stuck in traffic. Uh, so before we get stuck into tonight's offerings, I want to take a moment to pay tribute to director and cinematographer Nicholas Rogue, known for Walkabout, Don't Look Now, The Man Who Fell to Earth and my personal favourite, The Witches. Rogue was described by many as a fearless visionary and a great storyteller. Sally, do you have anything to share? Yeah, I do. I, he is one of my favourite filmmakers and I, he lived to the ripe old age of 90. I think so, you know, a good innings. But his contribution to the world of cinema is very an important one, I think. Um, my, I think, first introduction to him would have been The Witches when I was a child. But then when I became a fan of David Bowie, when I was quite young, I remember watching The Man Who Fell to Earth. And it totally blew my mind. And his work continued to do that for me because he was never confined to a particular genre. He sort of explored things and... Even with Don't Look Now, the, his, you know, amazing horror film with Donald Sutherland, he went out of genre and he also did things with lots of compassion um, that I think is really hard for filmmakers to, you know, a lot of filmmakers to do. So even, you know, in these genres that are quite hard, that he still has some compassion and humanity coming through, which is what I think is amazing about his work. Mm. Uh, and to quote Bowie's character in The Man Who Fell to Earth, all things begin and end in eternity. So tonight's show, we will scream, we will cry, and we will lose ourselves in our boy band fandom with the Australian documentary, I Used to Be Normal, a boy band fangirl story. We will also take a trip to Lightning Ridge in Alina Lidkina's Strange Colours. First tonight, though, we have Steve McQueen's Widows, a heist thriller that is generating a lot of Oscar buzz. Based on Linda LaPlante's 1980s British drama of the same name, the screenplay has been adapted by McQueen and Gillian Flynn. Veronica Rawlings, played by Viola Davis, is left widowed after her husband, Liam Neeson, and his partners are killed in a botched robbery. Chicago crime boss, a, a, a Chicago crime boss, threatens Veronica as her late husband had stolen $2 million from him, money he needed for his electoral campaign against Jack Mulligan, played by Colin Farrell, whose political family have dominated the local precinct. To set things right, Veronica gathers together the other women widowed by this botched robbery, Linda, played by Michelle Rodriguez, and Alice, Elizabeth Debicki. Joining their crew is Belle, Linda's babysitter and hairdresser, played by Cynthia Erivo, who we previously saw in The Bad Times at the El Royale. The ensemble cast also features Daniel Kaluuya, Carrie Coon, Jack we Jackie Weaver and Robert Duval. Now, Sally, there is a lot going on in this film. What did you think? 
There was a lot going on. There's in so this much place. going <laughs> so on. Even kind of trying to get all of that plot together in the little intro is a lot. So yeah, it was an '80s TV series. Do we have any idea of how long the series ran for? I think the first season went for six episodes. Mm-hmm. Because, yeah, you can see that there is a whole lot that they're trying to get into this film. Mm. Um, Having said that, though, I did enjoy it a whole lot, a whole lot more than I expected to. We've seen a couple of heist films this past two weeks. We looked at Robert Redford's The Old Man and the Gun last week. And and Widows, they're both very, very different takes on a traditional heist film. So, um... I I really like this in the way that it did explore its female characters. There was the um, character, I think, that um, Elizabeth Debicki played, uh, Alice, Mm -hmm. which... There, we reviewed a film earlier this year called Holiday, which played at MIFF, which was fantastic. It's one of my favourite films of the year. And the exploration of the, the, her character, Alice in Widows, really sort of threw back to that um, character in Holiday for me and how we construct people sort of just on their appearance and, Mm. you know, sort of attempting to sort of break that down, which I thought this did really well. There was lots of big issues that were looked at in this film, so not just, you know, being a female and being pretty and playing on that, but, you know, lots of things with race explored Mm. and, yeah. It did seem like a big sort of step away from what Steve McQueen normally does, though. Definitely. Yeah. I was the other way around. I really was looking forward to this film and I had huge expectations, uh, which I think is a symptom of this award season. Mm. Uh, at the moment, we are getting a lot of films coming out that have a lot of buzz surrounding them and they get spoken up a lot. And so we go into these films with the highest of expectations and that was my case for Widows. See, I went in with really sort of low expectations. <laughs> and I think there are moments of brilliance in this film. Yep. Uh, I think there's a really great shot where a camera is on the bonnet of Colin Farrell's car as it drives from, and it's one take, and it goes from uh, one neighbourhood to the other, and just in a few blocks, the socioeconomic status of the the neighbourhood changes. That particular scene that you're talking about, Stewie, was definitely a standout for me. Um, Even the way that the camera sort of... the the way that we saw Colin Farrell positioned in the car during that scene was incredible. Mm. Um, I am one of those people that I watch a film and on the first view I don't often notice camera work Mm. and that I did and I noticed it to be, you know, a positive. I thought it was great. Mm. And the opening and closing shots of the film as well I think are really fantastic. I mean, opening with Viola Davis and Liam Neeson in bed together I think is fantastic. Mm -hmm. Um, That being said, I think this film is in two parts. The second half, I think, is really, really great when we have all of the characters established, all of their motivations uh, set up, and when the heist actually kind of gets carried out. I think that's done really, really well. But the first half, I found the script to be a complete dog's breakfast. Uh, You can really tell that this is adapted from a television series because there's so many characters and there's so much going on and they're packing in so much that it just becomes so heavy where a scene will start and the moment the dialogue that delivers the plot, the necessary plot information, that scene is over. Mm. It's so quick and frenetic and packed in that there's not enough there to 
kind of really um, marinate, right? Like there's no, these characters don't have any texture for me. Well, it's interesting because Gillian Flynn wrote the script for this, who is also the author of the book Gone Girl and, the, and mm. she wrote the screenplay for Gone Girl as well. And I saw her talking about how she got involved in this project and um, she was also talking about her screenwriting process for Gone Girl 2, which was basically she reread Gone Girl once, even though it's her own work, um, went back, made a couple of notes, was like, I'm not going to touch it again. I want it to kind of be a fresh thing. So she had gone and watched the TV series of Widows, made a couple of notes and then not sort of revisited again because she wanted it to be a separate thing. But... um. Steve McQueen's relationship with the uh, TV series Widows, I think, is interesting, and she's tried to capture that because it seems like it's a formative thing for him and very important, where he was saying, as a young black boy growing up in the UK, he felt uh, very isolated and very separated from people, and he saw that in this TV series where these women were essentially, you know, outsiders because of their gender. And that's what he wanted to convey in this film. So I think that she has tried to get all those characters because they are, you know, part of what is really important to him about this story. Mm. Yeah, I, I just, I, I, I just think there's so much going on in this film that a lot of these big ideas are just nods and they don't really develop in any meaningful way. Gillian Flynn, I think, with her female characters are so multi-layered and, and, and difficult Right, yep. and I think these, the women in this film, I, I do find to be very one-dimensional. That's interesting that you say that because I thought that watching this, I found that they had a lot more emo- emotional depth than I am used to seeing in a film like mm. this. So I kind of felt like it did get a little deeper. Yeah. Um, than I expected it to. Yeah. Um, Particularly with the character of Alice. There were some... Michelle Rodriguez's character, what was... I forget the character's name. Uh, Linda. But, but I thought that could have been evolved a little more. It sort of seemed like we didn't touch on her as much mm. um, as we did with perhaps Alice and... Yeah, I mean, Michelle Rodriguez, I, f- I find her performance is very consistent with what we've seen Michelle Rodriguez do yeah. before. Yeah. And similar for Viola Davis, I must say. Her character, th- there were several moments in the film where I got sort of, I was always thinking about her character in How to Get Away with Murder, where yeah. she's trying to rally this disparate group of misfits and she's trying to sort of get them to sort of think about something very seriously and there were several moments in the film where sort of i saw her character in how to get away with murder um so it's it's mm. essentially she's doing a very similar thing Mm. Mm. and i I think sort of the strength of this film is her performance there are several moments quiet moments in the film where she's dealing with grief and she's sort of processing that information and so i think that's the strength of this film but yeah, I just found it so hit and miss. I it just for me, like it was, I really wanted to enjoy this, but there are, and and as I said, there was there are several moments which are really really great. Daniel Kaluuya's performance as the villain in oh, this he film was fantastic. Yeah, I think he really stole the show for me, to be honest, mm. um, because you know we've seen him in Get Out last year, which was absolutely phenomenal, and he is so kind and so vulnerable in that film, and in this movie, he is just an absolute prick. Mm. Um, so to see that massive shift, like, yeah, I thought he was incredible in this film. Mm. And I think the film speaks to an interesting trend uh, that we see during this period where this film is getting sold as Oscar bait. 
It mm. is being sold as, you know, a quote-unquote quality film where perhaps this should be being sold as a thriller. See, I, I see this as a thriller. Mm. You know, I'm not going, oh, my God, this is the most amazing thing I've ever seen. Mm. It should, you know, win everything at awards season. But, yeah, it is interesting that we have that now, that this is going to be an Oscar film. Yeah. Mm. I mean, obviously, the, I mean, those two things shouldn't be mutually exclusive, but mm. often they are. Yep. Uh, and, but, but I have seen uh, this discussion taking place from a lot of American-based critics where the release has been quite limited and this isn't really kind of translating into a sort of a broader audience, which is a real shame because I do think it is a good film. I just find it quite inconsistent. Yeah, I don't know. Do we feel that this has been hyped up as Oscar bait, though, because, you know, 12 Years a Slave was mm. so... Yeah, and Viola Davis as well. She's yep. a very strong actress. Mm. Uh, so, uh, bef- so uh, Widows is playing in wide release now. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Now to the Australian documentary, uh, I Used to Be Normal, a boy band fangirl story, which is a joyous and nostalgic documentary that looks at the evolution of boy band fandom. Spanning four years, director Jessica Lesky follows four women as they look back at their fandom. Elif of Long Island is obsessed with One Direction and dreams of playing tag with Zane and eating soup with Nile. Sadia in San Francisco loves the Backstreet Boys and dreams of being taught how to swim by Nick Carter. Dara in Sydney knows all of Take That's choreography. And Susan grew up in Melbourne and was a diehard fan of perhaps one of the first ever boy bands, The Beatles. The film explores how these four women navigate their fandom and while the media and how we access these bands might change, the pathologization of these teen girls, uh, teen girl fans remains consistent. Uh, now, this is a safe space. Cerise, uh, what was the boy band obsession that you grew up with? I absolutely never had any such thing, Stewie. I don't believe you. Um, tough. <laughs> Suck it up. It's just, you know, that, that wasn't a thing for me. I'm a rock chick and... Yeah. Um, this no. music never, ever spoke to me in the slightest. So, <laughs> Sally? Uh, yeah. The closest thing that I came to boy band worship was Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. <laughs> yeah. you got a tough crowd here, Stewie. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, Cerise, what did you think of the documentary? Well, I actually rather, rather uh, adored the, the film. I totally get where these people are coming from and I totally uh, feel for them in that their fandom has often been... Uh, derogated that that it's considered frivolous um, that that the interest of teenage girls um, is something that is never taken seriously and in a way this shouldn't be a serious matter it should be the joy of frivolity mm. and the joy of crushing on uh, unattainable pop teen idol objects and there's nothing unhealthy about that at least I think so but it's just that that, that, that whole area of music much as I never warmed to it. I still don't think anybody should be ribbed for their love of it because if it's a genuine response to art, no matter how manufactured or contrived it might be and how formulaic, it's still it's still someone's truth out there. And uh, I really feel for the, the women in this film who've actually been closeted uh, fans of this music. Mm, it's like a second coming out. It, it really is. I mean, for one, for one well, of them, it is a it, second coming it, it out. It is very literally. And, and yeah. yeah. And that is actually the film's most interesting aspect for me in that one of the, the fangirls in this film 
shifts the gaze. Mm. Um, it is presumed that people lose their shit over these sort of bands um, because they're just projecting all their fantasies onto them as as uh, uh, hopeful objects of their returned affection. Whereas someone here has that penny-dropping moment, which is that I actually wish to be them. Mm. And that's uh, quite... I mean, that just plays into so much feminist film theory right there. It's really fundamental to ideas of how we look at bodies, whether on screen or in the real world, and whether that look is always presumed to be that of... Um, and whether the beholder is, is is ogling someone or wishing to be ogled, you could say. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Sally? Uh, I found this absolutely delightful. I thought it was so nice to watch something that was just very, very uplifting. Um, I think one of them has a line in this film where she says, what's life without a big chorus? And, you know, I, I, <laughs> I came away from this really feeling like that. Uh, there was... A lot more depth in this documentary than I expected there to be, particularly on the comment of um, female sexuality and particularly female sexuality in young females and where do we channel that and that kind of gets suppressed and, you know, I guess these boy bands are a good channel for that. And it's there is there was a lot of nostalgia looking at this for me, even though I felt some guilt look watching this film because I was definitely one of those people that was like, the Backstreet Boys are shit. I like smashing pumpkins, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was 100% one of those people, but I still had I still had that insane fandom for these bands that I loved. They were just different bands. Um, so, yeah, I, I do think that there was a lot more depth and a, a really interesting look at, you know, I think young sexuality in this film than I expected. And it, but it was still completely joyous. Mm. Yes, yeah. I saw this at MIF. Uh, earlier this year uh, and two of the participants in the documentary were there at the screening. Oh, how exciting. Uh, and I do recommend seeing this film with a group of friends and with a crowded screening because it is so much fun. I haven't been to a screening where there, ha- there hasn't sort of been that sort of joyful laugh out loud uh, moments and there are so many in this film. Um, and I, th- I think it's quite a special documentary because it is about fandom and boy bands and and laughing at all of the the crazy costumes they wear and their sort of very silly poses but it is about uh this kind of fear and need to control teen female sexuality where this fandom is all about kind of breaking out of that control uh and formally i think it's a very well-made documentary because it is about uh all of these objects that these women collect uh, sort of through their fandom and how all of these kind of signed posters and newspaper clippings and uh, various forms of changing media, whether it's a VHS or a, or a, a DVD or whatever, how sort of all of that kind of represents their love and their kind of changing uh, fandom and how they look back. Uh, all of them take moments to look back at their sort of fandom and growing up. Uh, but also the animation in this film is really well done. Yeah. Uh, all the animation is used to express their desires and their, their dreams, which is great. Um, there was one really controversial moment in this film, which I'm not sure I agree with, and that is the boy band theory. Uh, uh, I did agree with that. I thought it was great. Well, because I went into that film thinking, all right, what was the one boy band that I was obsessed with? Who was it, Stewie? Well, okay, we'll get there. Uh, so <laughs> according to the boy band theory... Uh, they have the the representatives. The, the sorry, the the singers have to be between seventeen and twenty one. Uh, the themes that they can explore are fun, love, 
it has to be very PG, so no sex, uh, no beards. They have to have a very unique, consistent style uh, throughout um, sort of their their sort of their outfits, and they have five different types. There's the older brother, the cute one, the bad boy, the sexy one, and the forgotten one. Uh, but they can't be brothers, which I found really controversial because I was obsessed with Hanson growing up. <laughs> but they're not a boy band, though. They're not a boy band. They're a sibling I, band. They're a sibling band. I always thought Hanson were a boy band. And also someone, someone like uh, the, the band um, you know, Jackson 5, they're not a boy band, which I found quite controversial. But then it's really interesting that they explored the reason why, and that's because there's a manufactured element to the boy band and... Um, it's all sort of purely commercial and how they come about, where brothers sort of seen as being more authentic and how they form, which I think is interesting. I read an article about, um, written by Clem Basto, who's also uh, on Triple R, about I Used to Be Normal, and she was saying that initially this documentary had was going to be very different, where it didn't look particularly at fans, but at psychologists talking about, you know, people's obsession with boy bands and things like that. And... God, I'm so glad that it really did change its path because just having this focus on fans of the music made it just absolutely brilliant, I think. Well, that that was a focus, but there was an awful lot else in the fabric of this film and an awful lot of thwarted ambition for these fans. It wasn't just that their teen obsessions with music and boy bands was disparaged by parents and sometimes by friends as well, but just that their other interests as they matured were often also thwarted and and some of it was the weight of cultural expectations because there are two migrant families and the the American component of this film and so there are certain expectations that a a good daughter will do certain things and abandon other certain things or they might even I don't want to spoil too much of the film but for me it was really actually this this wasn't entirely joyous because there was some upsetting stuff in there about a a girl's dreams once they actually mature and on the brink of womanhood and actually thinking about the future and what they might like to be as a grown-up and having that suppressed. Mm. And that made me really sad. Yeah, that's quite a devastating moment in the film, I think. Three. Triple. Now to Strange Colours, our final film for the night. Russian-born, Melbourne-based filmmaker Alina Ledkina's feature debut, Strange Colours, premiered at the Venice Film Festival back in 2017 as a result of the Venice Biennale College program, an intensive course that mentors emerging filmmakers in the field of micro-budget filmmaking. Out of the participating filmmakers, the course will will fund just three of the proposed projects, giving them €150,000 for their film. And Alina Ledkina was one of the recipients of this grant, which allowed her to make strange colours. The young Melina, played by Kate Shield, travels to the outback opal mining town of Lightning Ridge to see her sick father, Max, played by Daniel P. Jones. As he recovers in hospital, she's left to explore her father's shack and its surrounds by herself, meeting the local characters evoking a wake and fright tone to the film. Yet the film is so much more, offering an ethereal look at the open landscape and mining pits of Lightning Ridge, all the while a thief is helping themselves to the mines. Cerise, what did you think of Strange Colours? 
This is a really gorgeous film. And uh, it's curious how Wake and Fright is always being dropped, name dropped in connection with this film because the films tonally have very little in common. Uh, Wake and Fright being this this film that was so integral to actually the Australian film industry getting off its ass again and and having a, a rebirth. And it famously being uh, an adaptation of a British writer, a Canadian director, all of this, these people with outsider perspectives on Australia and presenting Australia in possibly the, the worst possible light and a terrifying place which people can't leave and the, the hospitality is aggressive. Here we're, we're in somewhere which is equally as middle as middle of nowhere-ish and probably equally as unfamiliar to most certainly urban Australians as the the yapper in Wake and Fright. But um, I, I don't get that same sense of, of somebody seeing an Australian and presenting a version of Australia to Australians that um, will make Australians feel that cringy about who they, they are. This, this feels like such another world, really. Um, and, yes, it's a very masculine world, like Wake and Fright's uh, the, the yabba was as well. But this is... This lacks, not entirely, but it lacks that same sense of menace, um, a, a really in-your-face menace. This has a more subtle menace. Mm. It's, it's definitely because it's such an, an unusual landscape for me. I mean, I've never been anywhere near Lightning Ridge in all my life. I don't know whether either of you have. No. No. I mean, I'm, I'd be pretty interested to now because it looks stunning. Mm. I mean, sparse, but also, I mean, there's, well, there's strange colours in the earth perhaps, if you're lucky to stumble upon them. And I, I, I suppose one thing this does have in common with Wake and Fright, gambling, you could say, is, is a key element of both narratives. The people there in, in the Yabba play two up here. They're just, their whole life is a lottery. They're hoping they'll stumble upon the opal that will make them wealthy. But in the meantime, they all seem kind of content being stuck where they are. There's these big, weird blokes mm. uh, who live neither indoors nor outdoors. They, they, the, the shack that she gets to stay in her father's place, it, it, the divide between in and out is almost non-existent. And, and similarly, um, I mean, the only real divide seems to be above ground or beneath it, where there is a whole other world. And frankly, for me, that world is kind of terrifying because I'm kind of claustrophobic. <laughs> Sally? This movie also was very nostalgic for me, but in a really different way. Um, when I was a child, like a kid, I had one of my best friends went to Lightning Ridge for a holiday because her dad was living there and she just never came back because she fell in love with it, which mm. is essentially what everyone in this film keeps saying is happening. So it was very interesting for me to see this and to see that kind of, oh, you know, you're not going to leave because this place is so great, which I know somebody <laughs> that happened to. And, you know, when you're younger and a friend leaves, it's, it's a big deal. And that was a big deal in my life. And I used to send her CD singles in the mail because she had little access to things. Um, the only thing that I connection that I saw with Wake and Fright with this film was um, them consistently asking if she wanted a beer. Yeah, that was it. <laughs> but not, no one there as aggressively yeah. or with such yeah. yes, it was very motive like, of forethought. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want a beer? Yes, definitely. No. Yeah. Do you want a yes. beer? Yeah. That, that Nothing it. wrong with brekky beers. Yeah, that was kind of the only big connection that I saw. Uh, I did find when I watched this, and I only watched it last night, um, I had a sense of dread probably till midway through the film because I guess she was a female on her own and she was in this isolated landscape and I kept expecting for 
you know, the worst to happen. I don't know if that's a comment on our society or if that's a comment on the type of films that I watch. Better but yeah, I know. But there there definitely was I did feel that sense of dread. Different way to wake and fright. Now I do think I they're very, very different movies. Like I said, the only kind of connection was mm. the beer. But um, it did really explore that isolation of these small towns and I found the characters really beautiful in this film. Yeah, this is a very special film, I think. It's stunning. Um, and the, the reason why I just mentioned Wake and Fright is that a lot of people are connecting this film oh, yeah. to Wake and yep. Fright. Constantly. Mm. Yeah. I, I guess the connection that I see there is that there is this kind of outsider looking in uh, to this Australian town and just that sense of foreboding and menace just lurking beneath. Uh, though, Cerise, you are right that in Wake and Fright it's not really foreboding or beneath the surface it's very yeah, upfront. Yeah, in your face. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I think this is an incredible art house film. The moments in the pits are just stunning. There's a, a real quiet isolation to this film uh, of these men who talk of freedom uh, and it's this real dreamlike sort of examination of the landscape. There's a really beautiful moment where two characters are running through the bush and it's really quiet, but there's some panic there as well, I find. Yeah. And her performance at the centre of this is... Oh, she's great. Yeah. Mm. I've, I've never seen her in anything before, but she's incredible. Uh, nor I, though I have seen Daniel P. Jones, mm. um, who, who has cut such an interesting figure himself. There's a, there's a weight of lived experience that just hangs to his person in mm. this film, as in uh, films he's done with Emil Corson Wilson, which people actually have an opportunity to see something of at the Melbourne Cinematheque beginning mm-hmm. this Wednesday, mm-hmm. which opens with Hale and Cicada, two films that yep. he's in yep. very prominently. He's such a fascinating presence. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, uh, so it's, uh, I don't know quite how to, how to describe it. It's not a charisma in a conventional way at all, but it's just a very real um, person. Even I don't know how much acting you know that capital a acting is ever going to be part of his repertoire but the being is powerful mm. do you know what i mean yeah she i was reading uh, reading an interview with her and she finds this uh separation between professional actors and and non-professional actors as just really boring yeah. where she says everyone bees on screen yeah. and that's what interests her well this was initially uh she had made a documentary about lightning yes. ridge hadn't she yeah yeah and that's how this got developed into a feature so i guess she got to hear non-actors mm. <laughs> stories about you know their lives in lightning ridge and mm. why they were there Mm. It, it would be lazy to do this, but I'm going to do it a little bit anyway. She, uh, the director, Alan Elodkina, has something of a Russian background. There's mm. all these Eastern European traditions of art house film, which are slow, languorous, uh, full of uh, landscapes, often sparsely populated and generally miserableist in tone. This isn't doesn't quite have that miserableism about no. it. Mm. Um, it does exactly have joy of the um the the boy band film we were talking about either but this this just has is a lovely mood piece and there is there is something that makes it does it really does stand out from australian film there are not a lot of other people who are making films that have that sort of tone to mm. them it is a lot more of a european sensibility mm. um and possibly more of an eastern european sensibility and i think that that just permeates this film um which is perhaps why that landscape appears quite so otherworldly as well, on top of it being generally quite 
alien to mm. us city slickers. Yeah, and that's mm. why I think this is such a fascinating film because it has been funded externally to Australia and she has clearly been influenced by work outside of Australia as well. So she's a really interesting talent and uh, she's working on two different projects at the moment, so I'm really excited about what she does next. Tonight, uh, we discussed Strange Colours, which is playing in limited release. And we also discussed I Used to Be Normal, a boy band fangirl story, which is also in limited release. And uh, Widows, which is in wide release. Um, And uh, before... And Cerise, do you have any comments on Nicholas Rogue? Because I know, because we had a tribute to him. While I was stuck in traffic. While you are stuck in traffic. traffic. I know you wanted to sort of mention him. Yeah, I did. Well, actually, I I don't know that you covered performance. You didn't speak of performance? No, we didn't. No, no. which he didn't direct single-handedly. He had the extremely eccentric Donald Kamel in the mix there as well. But before he directed the great rock god David Bowie, he directed Jagger Mm. and good luck to him I say and that was such a a a seminal film a huge um uh fiasco as far as the studio was concerned and they suppressed it for a couple of years but it's become a film of great influence subsequently a film about fluidity of identity very now and yet it's you watch it and you can feel immersed and it's sort of uh, would be very late 60s into early 70s milieu gangsters meet rock stars I mean it's it's pretty extraordinary and becomes truly psychedelic apparently we we've never got to see the definitive version of it some of the footage went missing long ago and Mm. but what still exists is remarkable so further to what you all had to say about the great nicholas rogue earlier i would urge people to check out performance Mm. Mm. i think also with performance that he is often just credited as being even you know co-director technical advisor which he's so much more than that in performance you can really see him come through with it which is, it's a brilliant movie mm. uh so t- uh so you've been listening to sally christie and cerise howard and myself Stuart richards thank you to faith everard who edits the podcast version of this show and to carl chapman on the decks tonight this has been a podcast from three triple r 102.7 fm in melbourne truly independent community radio want to hear more check out our website at rrr.org.au